Hello, hello, this is Barkay from D2C Will. D2C Will is an online community where we talk about direct-to-consumer brands, technologies, and everything in the D2C space. And in this new episode of D2C Will's podcast, we are together with Brian, founder of uh, Born Brands. Born offers high-performance, smaller footprint socks for various occasions, like everyday wear, training, uh, skiing, and harsh working conditions. So, Brian, it's a great pleasure to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. So, where are you dining from, Brian? Uh, I am calling from upstate New York. We are in Hudson Valley, New York, about two hours north of Manhattan. Are you currently in your garage? I'm not. I'm in the studio. Uh, we have a studio out back of the house where I, I work from normally. And you can see it's a bit of a mess at the moment as we get a lot of things ready for Q4. But you have an interesting background still, that's, so that's all right. Uh, so, Brian, can you tell a bit about yourself and your personal background, what you did before founding your own brand? Sure. Before Warren, uh, I was working in, in advertising after grad school, finished school in Virginia and uh, went to New York and started working on the strategy side at ad agencies where I worked for 12 years, uh, working for you know all sorts of major brands from Bud Light to Uber to Capital One. Um, as well as a handful of startups and holding companies and things like that. Uh, what I learned there was effectively, if you're not solving a problem for a consumer, you're not solving a problem for your brand either, right? And mm-hmm. uh, messaging alone isn't going to push away uh, product problems. So over time, I just became more and more interested on the product side. And uh, the last role I had was working with a large agency, but consulting with sort of seed stage startups um, and really working with those founders and seeing how they just loved uh, product and all the different problems they were able to solve. I decided to jump off and start my first project. The first project was a, a small company called Wet Socks. Uh, we built a Amazon P&L off of the concept of building frictionless socks or designing frictionless socks for getting in and out of wetsuits or hunting and fishing gear. Um, we built that over three or four years and then actually through that process, recognized that there was a, a demand for higher performing, uh, more feature rich socks in the general consumer space, but that's not what that project had been built for. So we wrapped that up and sold it and we launched Warren, uh, about two and a half years ago as a direct consumer brand. And it has been quite a journey. I see. So what was your interest in socks in the first place? Where coming from? Well, so with the original project with wet socks, uh, I was trying to solve the problem of getting in and out of a wetsuit. I don't know if you've ever been in a wetsuit, but I would get up uh, and surf in the morning before going to work. And in New York, you're wearing a pretty heavy wetsuit of 5'4". So pulling it on and off is, is a real pain <laughs> and not, not the most comfortable thing. Yes, uh, and it's also not very good for the suit, right? Um, so I, I came home one day, it was you know, kind of February, and I Googled easier ways to get on a wetsuit. And I'd been doing this for years. I just finally was like, God, there must be a better way. And there was two things on the market. One was a, a hand puppet-looking thing, which you could put over your hand to try and get in a little bit easier. But then when you were in the suit, it was useless. And then 
The other option was in commercial diving, which was effectively shampoo. They called it suit lube and you would put it all over your body, um, which I just thought was absurd, right? Like you're trying to get into a wetsuit. So you're just going to stand there in the cold and cover yourself in, in slime. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound very appealing. Uh, what we really need is a pair of socks that don't catch the suit and you could get in, get in and out pretty easily. So um, when about three months worth of work in Google in the garment district in New York, trying to figure out the right fabric to make what I was viewing at the time as sort of industrial pantyhose. And uh, we found this, this great fabric after about 16 tries and um, we were, you know, still having them hand stitched and it was, it was a really cool experience. But um, the first time you really tried and tested them, you just shot through that wetsuit. And I was like, well, this is amazing. Like this is, this, this thing really works. Um, so we spent some time just giving them out to other surfers in the area and then some surf shops and then some dive shops called, and we started making other products. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, three years went by and I'm still working full time, uh, in agency and then finishing in the evening and like answering all these emails for customer service and stuff at night. Um, and what we learned through the process was, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to improve any, any market that has been commoditized, right? Like people are looking at socks and saying they didn't expect something from them, but the second you gave them a function or a real product solve that was different than what was in the market. Uh, they became very interested. And so we wanted to see if that theory would work when we went to a larger market, when we started um, initially designing Warn. And what we looked at in the market was say, hey, what's really good here and how can we improve upon it? And uh, you know, at first we looked at cotton socks and we found, well, yeah, these are very popular and it's mostly because the price point is cheap. Even the very premium ones are, you know, still cost a dollar to make or whatever it is. Um, and cotton absorbs 10 times its weight in water, uh, which is why the socks stretch out. And also, you know, people think their feet sweat a lot. It's not really that your feet sweat. It's that cotton absorbs its weight in water. And when it's wet, it, it doesn't do a very good job of drying inside a shoe. So actually, it's a very, it's a very bad fabric for a sock. Um, so we moved on from, from cotton, uh, and we started looking at Merino and Merino is a excellent, uh, staple fiber. It's extremely strong. Uh, a, a very high quality of it is very soft. Uh, but it does as an organic fiber, it could use a little bit of support from elasticity. Um, and it also benefits from moisture management of technical fabrics. So, that's a long way of saying those were the products and the fabrics we were working with in the previous project. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, what if, what if we spun some of these technical fabrics we've been working with, with the Merino and we gave it some elasticity um, and we improved its moisture management. And the result was uh, a product called Aerowool and it's a performance enhanced Merino um, that we make all our products out of. It is uh, carries 10 times less water than cotton. It lasts five times longer, won't lose its shape in the wash, um, is naturally antimicrobial, um, and it's got this amazingly low uh, environmental footprint, which is, which is great because the, the technical fabrics we're using are largely recycled. And then, of course, Merino is a, is a very positive um, fiber in that aspect. So, uh, yeah, we recently received a patent on that. And... 
you know, are slowly, slowly building out our market presence, but so far people seem to like it. I see. So at one point you mentioned 16 trials with different sort of fabrics and you mentioned you've been through this process while finding the best product for yourself. So are you familiar with this business? You know, I'm, I'm asking this because I'm trying to understand the process behind the finding the best uh, product for, you know, building your socks from. So were you like interested in the wool industry or were you, you know, uh, working closely with your suppliers at that time? I've always been, I guess you could say sort of an outdoors type. Uh, I grew up sort of hunting and fishing and hiking and camping and those sorts of things. And um, at the time uh, that we were designing the product, I was also doing a lot of, a lot of running. Uh, and so, you know, I had gone out and was purchasing a bunch of different brands as we were looking to design. Like I said, we needed to find a product. We wouldn't have introduced a product that wasn't significantly better and had a significantly different market story because otherwise you're just a brand, right? And you're trying to like spend money and we didn't have any money. So we didn't, we didn't want to go that route. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, we don't, <laughs> we don't say the word internally, but, you know, I bought, I bought a very expensive pair of socks from a big brand that a lot of people know. We call them the B word and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, I, I went out and I bought them and I spent like $18 a pair on it. And I was really excited about them. I was like, you know, somebody else has already created this amazing product. Um, and they were probably like the 10th thing we tried and, you know, I wanted to compare it to, and I was like, oh, they, they might not upend this whole deal. And, um, you know, I went for a run in their product and I, I ran like five miles and I got home and I already had hot spots and had worn a hole in one of the socks. And that's when I, you know, significantly changed the concept of what fiber we could include and the level of what we were doing. Right. There was a lot of things in the market that were a better version of the same thing. And then you would look at in the cotton players, and then you would look at the Merino players, you'd have like darn tough and smart wool, which both offer great products. And we tested all their products, right? Um, but anytime you have 100% of any fabric, you have the weaknesses of that fabric, right? So in Merino, there's a lot of marketing like 100% Merino. And it's like, well, did you ever ask if 100% Merino is what you needed? Or did you just get marketed to and told that 100% was the best because it's easier to produce than creating a technically enhanced version? And so when we went through that process, you know, we started with those products as the things we wanted to beat or surpass. They were kind of our horizon. And, you know, I spent, we spent months and years. I mean, we had hundreds of people test the product and write feedback and that type of thing. But, um, to answer your question very directly, originally, I was literally running around with two different pairs of socks on every day, like one on one foot and one on another foot. And I'd be running, you know, somewhere between three and seven miles a day and then working or doing whatever and taking notes, wearing, you know, one uh, sock comprised of X fabric and one sock of another brand comprised of another and taking the notes and talking about what worked and didn't and then subbing in one of our prototypes um, and talking about how that worked. And then you'd get, you know, those notes ready and you'd, you'd get just enough information to enhance, you know, to a gen two or three of what the prototype was. And you'd give out 20 of them to your friends and then you'd call them after three days and they'd tell you, wow, I really like this. I thought this was really good, but, but this, this still sucks. So you got to fix this. 
And so in, it takes a little while, but we got there. In Fancyverse, you did the R&D yourself, right? Yes, we did the R&D ourselves, and we knew what we knew what we wanted the outcome to be, right? Like my background wasn't textile. My background wasn't, wasn't fabric design, as you've heard. But as a consumer, I knew what I wanted, right? Like as a runner, I knew what I wanted. As an outdoorsman who is, you know, like maybe hiking with a 65-pound pack and c- traveling between 8 and 10 miles a day, like you know what you want from that situation. Or as a person who... Um, you know, is working outside, uh, you know what you want in the winter when you're, you know, working around the house or working in the yard or, or chopping wood or something like that. Um, and that was our metric, right? Like our metric was us. Uh, you could see what was in the market, but we just, what we wanted wasn't there yet. Yeah. So you're talking about the process that is long and that is costly. Like how did you initially financed it how like did you get any investment or did you do bootstrapping so the first two years we were completely bootstrapped um you know there's a way it it is long and it is an intense process but i think that there's like this strange love affair with i have an idea i'm going to call it a startup and if i call it a startup it doesn't have to make money and someone should give me money for it right yeah. And that's sort of absurd. Um, if you look at any of the successes that actually happen in the market, you know, there's been years of effort and oftentimes where the founding team or the first few members were in their living room or their garage doing this in the evening and making slow progress, um, but doing it without putting a lot of stress on the PL, right? Like they're not paying themselves a salary. They're just doing the work because they're very interested in it. They're they're spending, you know, money on product development and they're paying for those individual rounds, but they're not paying for an office um, and they're not, you know, they're not paying for, um, you know, all these new computers and all, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, the things that you might think you need. What's really important is identifying the product and getting it where you want it to be and then accepting that that can grow slow at least for us that was the route that we took and so for two years we just kind of let the product evolve and it wasn't really even about sales it was just can we get this to a place where if a hundred people called us in a day we could even fill the orders um and when we felt like we got there you know, then we, we went out and we started saying, hey, guys, um, you know, and cold calling investors, right? Mm-hmm. And saying, hey, we've got this product that we think is really different. And uh, before we send you our deck and, you know, we talk about a U.S. market size of $8 billion and all these big stats that everybody already has. Um, before we'll even send you our deck, we're going to send you a pair of our product. And if you don't like it, don't call me back. But if you like it, let's talk. And everybody that we've worked with has gotten product first before we've even talked about cash. Wow. Well, that's a real cool story, man. Uh, So they liked your product and afterwards they decided to invest in you, right? And how did this process go? Was that a smooth progress from the initial R&D that you did with your, you know, 
a pair of friends to you know an invested company well it wasn't like a completely smooth process because as i was saying like we started trying to develop a product for scale for the original product right for that wet Sox brand and when we realized the potential of arrow wool that there was no enhanced merino in the market um that this was a patentable thing um, and that we really wanted to just push it to as good of a product as it could be. We really were, were kind of going slow and making sure we had a very, very, very tight story. Um, but we also had to accept that the original brand wasn't going to support that idea. It was too big of an idea. So we had to start Warren as a bigger idea to support the new fabric. Right. And that's how, um, we, we decided to make that transition uh, after all the, the product development. And, um, you know, you, you, you put in all of this effort and then you've got this product and suddenly are on the spot for not just saying, okay, here's a product that people like better. Then all of a sudden you have to say, well, here's my go-to-market strategy and here's how I'm going to build it as a direct consumer brand. And here's how I'm going to acquire customers. Um, and so, no, I mean, we had, we had months of contacting people and even people that liked the product and totally, totally crapping the bed on the call, right? Like not knowing how to communicate, not knowing, um, what we should even really ask for. We didn't know what good looked like. Um, you know, there are people that would, would call, call back, call you back and say, yeah, the product's really good, but, um, you know, the, the lifestyle images on your site are dumb. And, you know, I, I view myself as an athletic person. Why, why is everyone on the site not, you know, carrying barbells and stuff? And um, you'd get, you know, you, you would feel a little down on yourself because you didn't, you didn't know, you thought you were supposed to win, right? And then when you start talking to other founders, this amazing thing kind of happens. And I wish I had started doing it earlier. But the first thing a founder will do is be really empathetic about where they've just completely screwed up. And they just, they'll just hand that information to you because they don't want you to have to go through the same thing. Right. Yeah. And that was, it was really great because that was when I started to realize like one, not everybody's going to be a fit for you. Um, a lot of people take a call just because they kind of want to rip apart a brand. You know what I mean? The good people don't do that. But, you know, there are people that do it. And um, we started having warmer and warmer conversations because we started getting more and more targeted, right? People that had worked in the uh, area before, people that had, were familiar with um, apparel products, people that did that stage of funding. And we really started to focus in. Um, and through founder contacts, we did... Uh, we were fortunate enough to be introduced to some people that had those conversations with us and took them seriously. And, you know, our first investor that came in um, outside of like, you know, the friends and family was a four month conversation. And it very much looked like we were going to close that round that was going to get us off the ground and take us into D to C land. Um, but in order to appear, as though we were ready. Like I had to charge 20K on my personal credit card 
to build the site and take the lifestyle images and like do the product shoot of the product we had in house and make it look like it was a business that could scale and not like something that, um, you know, was, was cobbled together because we had all the pieces, but from a brand perspective, it just wasn't there yet. And so we finally got that together and showed it and said, you know, we've been talking about this, um, for four months, but just go look at the site now and you can see what we're talking about. You can see like, we want you to shop by occasion and we want to talk about fabrics and this is why it's different. And this is what we believe in that kind of concept. Uh, and you know, that, that risk, I think ultimately pushed us across the line, but you know, there was, there's nothing smooth about it. And, uh, I don't, don't, if your if your first conversation goes smoothly, is this for anybody out there that's that's thinking about doing this? If your first conversation goes smoothly and you land money, congratulations, that's amazing. But don't assume the next one will go that way, right? Um, Words of advice: Assume that you're constantly going to have to to work for it, and you will be in a much safer position. And throughout the entire process of you know finding the perfect material building your product, building your company, how did you leverage your previous experience in working with uh, like marketing, working with working in uh, marketing with companies and agencies? Yeah, I, I think there's two ways. One, we're really just starting to get to a scale where I can take a macro vision and start to employ it in more interesting ways. For a long time, we were doing a lot of very simple performance-based marketing. And yes, you have a brand element to that, but it's very product-driven, right? And that's that's fine. We always want to ladder up to our concept of higher performance, smaller footprint. We want to ladder back to the concept of, um, you know, a sustainable product can also be a high-performance product, and that's a, a cornerstone of the brand. But um, to answer the question directly, one, knowing that the brand had to ladder up to something came from working in it in a different world and knowing that that element needs to be pretty simple, pretty straightforward and not ever a hindrance. It's always just a little amplifier um, is helpful, right? Because you're like, yep, this is the goal we're working towards and it's a point of orientation. Um, but on the other side, you know, you could look at marketing and say, oh, it's these big macro ideas and these strategies. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're used to giving these um, presentations to people that are spending 50, $100 million. And then all of a sudden you're spending 50, $100 and it's on performance marketing and it's completely unrelated, right? And it's all about customer acquisition cost and about a balance of that against lifetime value and your customer uh, retention rate and those types of things. So I would say it was kind of a double-edged sword because from like a macro orientation, I was able to say, here's the problem we want to solve. And we know that the product needs to be X viable before we can, we can meet that, that goal or that standard. But on the other side, I don't think I gave total, uh, credit to you know, the complexity is of performance marketing, right? It's its own, it's its own world. It's a different aspect. I see. Uh, so like you mentioned the smaller footprint part when you're talking about your business. So what is your approach to the sustainability? Yeah. So there's two, there's two approaches we have to that. Um, the first is 
supply chain and material, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure your suppliers are meeting um, various uh, environmental protection standards. Um, and you just, you use this as a cut factor from the very beginning. You know, they're not participating in certain elements. They have certain certifications and that's something you can find generally. That's just kind of good business. Um, from a fabric selection process, you then have the opportunity to do something like, well, you can use a product like cotton, which takes 20,000 liters of water, uh, to produce 10 raw kilograms of cotton or, or to produce one raw kilogram of cotton, excuse me, uh, which is only about 10 pairs of socks uh, and uses 16%, people don't know this, but cotton uses 16% of the world's pesticides, right? So it's a top wastewater producer. Um, but you know, it's got, a, it's got a very good conversation historically because it's a cheap fabric and, and you know, clothing companies love making product out of it because they make a lot of money on it. Um, so, you can look at the fabric and say, are we going to participate in something that does this and has this footprint or not? And so we chose not to. And so you make, you make a choice there between like, not just a product quality, but what your footprint's going to be when you're going through that selection process. Right. And you have to decide that early on in the brand, like, is this something we're going to stand by or not? And then the same thing when you get into um, your tech fibers and other things. Right. And that's a, a a generalization for how you would approach it in apparel, but I would say supply side is a big part. Um, and then the other aspect is, you know, Yvonne Chouinard said the most sustainable product is the product to keep the longest. And he said that for a couple of reasons, like one, if you love it and it outperforms, you're going to keep it longer generally, but two, if it's durable and it lasts, right? If it's well-designed and it creates a significant difference, then you don't have to make it again and again and again. And if you think about socks and base layers and those types of things, like most people view them as a commodity product. It's something they throw away. They're like, oh yeah, I can, you know, people write in our ads all the time. They're like, well, I could buy a, a 20 pack from, uh, Costco for $20. And I'm like, well, that's, that's great if you want, but you're literally buying trash and then throwing it away. Like, I don't really believe in single use products, right? Like you can look at the H&Ms and the Zara's and the Uniqlo's of the world. And like, yes, you can buy cheap things. Um, and the average American consumer only wears a garment like three times, which is terrifying. Um, but that's not a model we want to participate in. And so to avoid that, you have to build something that is very durable and also performs for a long time. Um, and by making products that people don't have to continuously buy, right, that last significantly longer, you are eliminating a huge aspect of the supply chain impact, right? People talk all the time about materials and, we're, you know, our CO2 footprint, or our carbon footprint and stuff like that. But it's like... And they're talking about their product specifically, but are they talking about their entire production process, right? And does it outlast? Because if we, if we think about the massive negative um, impact that production has on the environment and shipping the product, right? Yeah. You know, we have to take that into account. And also like, well, you know, I could talk about this all day and I'll stop. You get the, you get the point. Basically yeah. better materials and longer lasting is how we approach sustainable. And we're trying to break up the commodity mindset with basics that 
it's okay to buy something and, and toss it. It should, it should, you should get more for your money and you should get more from your product and it's better for the environment as a default. It's, it's a great perspective, man. And like fast forward to today, you are selling both online and on retail stores, right? We are. And how do you manage this entire process in terms of supply chain management, in terms of fulfillment and everything? So we work with a 3PL. They've been a great partner. I was going to ask you this. Are you working with a 3PL? Yeah, we've worked with a 3PL for several years now. Um, and I would say that, you know, right after supply, having that partner be very reliable and secure is, I mean, just so consequential. Right, because mistakes there are expensive and difficult to correct. Um, so you know, if you're going into D 2 C, be very, very rigorous with that relationship and setting it up properly. Um, but yeah, the the way we manage from a supply standpoint is we have a very simple packaging that can ship to either. Uh, a consumer or go to wholesale, right? Mm -hmm. So all our products are packed the same. And what that avoids is having to carry two sets of inventory. A lot of small brands will have a wholesale package and then a D2C package. And what happens is in inventory management, you're like trying to predict how many one side will buy and how many the other side will buy. And it becomes extremely difficult. Was that an was intentional that? decision? Was that an intentional decision? Or it was, was an intentional decision, um, but we had the benefit of the previous project, right? So that project originally was retail focused, and then we went on to Amazon and did direct. But originally, I mean, we literally called 2,500 surf and dive shops over the first five months. And of the, you know, 2000 that answered a thousand or 750 wanted a sample and one out of five uh, or one out of one out of maybe three at that point decided to make an initial order. Right. And I mean, there's very small orders, uh, but uh, you know, that's how we had originally gotten off the ground in the, in the other project. Um, and we realized very quickly that, setting up for wholesale is a great horizon because it's kind of a higher threshold than what some people send direct to consumer because, well, ultimately the packaging is going to get thrown away and you've already purchased it. So you don't have to have a giant bright RTB based kind of presentation. Um, but if you can design for both in the beginning and you can transition over another thing to take into account is if you're designing for wholesale, you may not effectively be designing for efficient ship efficient shipping. Right. You may have made this big box and this other thing, which makes it more expensive to ship. Um, so anyway, we'd gone through that back and forth. And when we, you know, set up Warn, we knew that the metrics of success were looks great on a shelf, doesn't make a lot of waste and will ship well to a consumer can be used in both. And if you meet those criteria, you're going to save a lot of hassle. <laughs> And like, how do you manage the uh, inventory forecasting? Do you use any tool, any, you know, uh, algorithms for that? No, I, with one of the members of the team, developed our own in-house 
sort of application. Um, and it's, it's really simple, right? Like we, we have all our SKUs, right? And we have actually divided them by channel. So we track all our sales by channel, every unit sale by channel. Um, and it's a pain, but if you set up that way, you know, you can see it. And another thing you're going to want to do just to, before I get into the answer to this question, like if you're setting this up, give yourself the information that you think you're going to want in the future. Like obviously simplicity is, is paramount in reporting and we will save that conversation for another day. But you know, if, if you can th try to think through the decisions you're going to have to make six months from now and make sure that when you set up your data and your SKUs and your initial platform, that you've got an eye to that. Because if you don't, six months down the road, you're going to be like, wow, I really need to know whether wholesale is growing faster than direct or is was 20% of that product I gave away samples when I was promoting but I shipped them all into the same SKU. And so I'm overbuying my inventory because I counted my samples as sales. And now all of a sudden I've got too much stuff. You know, you need to think through those kind of conversations because they will make your data difficult to use later. Right. So, so that's an important facet, but anyway, to, to get to the question, um, we designed our own very simple uh, sort of readout and, we, we enter all the SKU information, we enter all the unit sales information, uh, and we track it by month. And then we have, you know, our in-house inventory in one column. And we say, over the last three months, we've burned X percent of that inventory. How many months do we have left? And, you know, you can dial up and dial down the complexity from there. Um, but your growth rate is unpredictable and that makes it hard to manage. Uh, so we haven't we haven't used any any outside sources, um, and and using our own data has been been the most effective. I see. So now let's dive into the marketing side of things because it's also an important aspect of your business, I suppose. So can you give us an overview of your marketing efforts in both wholesale and on digital contacts? Yeah, wholesale is is something we're just really starting to grow. And if we're completely honest, it is a bang the phones model. Um, we have a team member that makes X number of contacts in X verticals a week. And we do our follow-ups. We put stuff in our CRM management. You know, you can use Zoho, you can find Pipedrive, whatever it is. Use a tasking software that'll reach back out to you. Right. And it's just about repeated diligence. Right. Like you can also reach out and contact brokers, um, which they can review the product and say, yes, we think this might be a fit for our audiences. I'd be a little wary of people that are like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, $7,000 a month and we'll call our list of contacts and we'll get back to you when we're done. Um, there's a lot of models out there like that, that, you know, if we're completely honest, like, startups and founders are their own little economy. And so there's a lot of little agencies and other people that have started halo economy businesses that just want to want to take the money you've got saved up for your, your little initiative. Right. Um, and they get paid well and they get paid up front. So be very wary of that sector of people. Uh, Cause there are a lot of agencies and, and a lot of brokers out there that, that want to run down that model. And you should be fearful of, of that. But um, anything that looks easy 
is just going to be an expensive mistake. <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so for for our direct marketing efforts, uh, there's a lot of test and learn, right? Like small budget, uh, top funnel stuff where you're doing audience testing. iOS 14 has made stuff complicated. So we use Triple Whale, like third-party attribution, does a pretty good job of, of keeping things honest. Yeah. Um, and you need to be able to compare that data. You can't just trust what's coming in from your platform. Uh, Google's pretty honest. Our experience with Meta has been they are pretty optimistic with their conversion numbers, to say the least. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's, Folks know that by now, but anyway, um, repeated test and learning. And then, you know, don't look for a silver bullet, except that amongst different audiences, you're going to scale at different speeds and try and, and dial up and dial down, um, efficiently, not necessarily quickly. And a mistake we made, you know, I'm, I'm having this conversation through hindsight, right? So it sounds like I know what I'm saying. But there were years of doing things incorrectly, right? And you make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, some of the mistakes we made were we have to grow at X rate because we've had, we have investors now. And yeah. so we had 24 months of hitting every projection we wrote, which was amazing. And we lost less money. We grew faster and we lost less money than we said we were going to do. But if you weren't looking at, oh, I have to hit this revenue projection, what you would have done is look at, I need to hit this customer acquisition cost projection. And you would have accepted earlier that you were overpaying for a customer when you could have grown a little bit slower, saved that money. And instead of taking two years, it would have taken three years, but you'd been in a less stressed cash position, right? And those are the types of things that, you know, a little bit of experience helps out with, but it's important to think about, right? Like, how do you want to, how do you want to live your day to day? Do you want to be worried that you're going to run out of gas when you're traveling hundred miles an hour, or do you want to drive 55 miles an hour all the way there without worrying about it? Um, and that's, you know, there's, there's different approaches, but I would go with the stay small test and learn again. Like I, the moral of the story is do the hard work, go slow and you will get there faster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good way to put it. So you mentioned these mistakes, right? Mistakes, trials and error. What was the mistake? The most, biggest mistake you did you know that you remember that you cannot stop thinking about uh everything i don't <laughs> i when you look at almost any decision in hindsight it's really easy to beat yourself up over it because once you have the information on the other side you know that you didn't make a perfect decision and yeah. so in some ways, everything you do is going to be wrong, nice. right? But you also have to accept and remind yourself that if you had done nothing, you wouldn't have the information and you would have gone nowhere. So there's a balance of that. And I just want to encourage people out there, if they're screwing up, one, try to keep the screw up small, but accept them and move past them. Um, I would say that the, the screw up I made, and I think a lot of people can be guilty of this, but particular to me is... We were growing very rapidly at several stages and, you know, I felt that some of our customer acquisition costs in some channels were too high and I didn't correct that immediately. 
Like the second I felt like, you know, that was caught, like becoming a cost or even just something that wasn't sustainable. Um, you need to address that and go back and talk to the team. And, you know, as a founder, sometimes you're like, oh, I have to, I wrote these projections. I have to do these things and you go and, um, you know, sometimes what's projected is not what's best for the business. And at the end of the day, what you're responsible for is doing what's best for the business. And if strategy starts changing, you know, change those things um, immediately. And, you know, and again, I say that, but like the reality was when I continued doing that thing, we were in a raise and repeat model, right? Like we were in that kind of, you know, in a big e-com model that everybody wanted to live up to where you raise $500,000 first year and a million the second year. And then and you imagine that in the third year, you're going to get 5 million. And in the fifth year, you're going to get 10 and all those things, which never happened to us. So, you know, don't let, don't let me pretend that it did. Um, but, you know, you write a strategy and a, and a concept of how the business is going to evolve and you factor those raises in the future. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's viable. I think that the smartest thing to do, actually, now that I've talked through this, I think the smartest thing to do is never call your your project a startup and always call it a business. The biggest the biggest mistake that I made was was calling this a startup and not a business because I believe that you could operate in a different way. Um, and we've, you know, it it never really put us in jeopardy, but it does change the way you operate and you will operate more efficiently when you view it as a business. I see. So about the, um, like we're coming to the end, but I just wanted to talk about the uh, platform you're using at the moment. You're on Shopify, right? We are built on Shopify. And what e-commerce tools are you using on Shopify from Shopify's own app store? Uh, yeah, there's a couple. We are testing. We were using Rebuy for a little while for cross-sell. Um, which was great, but ultimately you may get to a scale where you want to sort of build those things on your own. Um, because you know, some of those features that we were using, we found weren't too difficult to, to kind of build out. Um, we were using, uh, lifetimely and we ultimately ended up for lifetime value transition and tracking your cohort analysis and stuff like that. Shopify has recently come out with their own version. Um, built into analytics. It's not as refined as a lot of the lifetimely data, but um, that's helpful. I can just look and see what do I have? What else do we have in our apps right now? We have Smile for loyalty and rewards program. Okay. Uh, and we have Yapo uh, for our review program. You're going to have to have a third party review program if you're in D2C. Yes. One, because Google Analytics requires it. Um, you can't just make up a bunch of stuff and <laughs> put it on your site and you shouldn't. Um, but they're great. They integrate really, really well. Um, and what we're looking for now, honestly, like as we add new elements and we do new tests, I would say it's it's 50% like organic growth or 50% like retained customer growth and 50% net new marketing growth. Whereas, you know, a year or two ago, we were looking, oh, it's all net new, it's all net new. It's like, well, what are you doing referral wise? 
what are you doing uh, retention wise? What are you doing subscription wise? If your product, you know, is, is available for that. Um, because you're not paying a, a customer acquisition cost on that. And it's, you know, it's a lifeline of the business. Uh, well, thank you for your honest answers, your great insights. So we are coming to the end. And before closing, is there anything you would like to add? Is there anything you would like to share with our audience? Uh, don't be too hard on yourself and and stay small. I mean, you can, you can dream really, really, really big, but you should test small and plan on small progress because you will you'll definitely move faster than um, only making big bets. So anyway, and uh, also find other founders. They're happy to talk to you. They'll help you. <laughs> you don't, you're not, you're not, you're not an end alone. Yeah, this is part of what we are doing at Deed Civil, right? Building a community around founders. So yeah, here we are, this is an opportunity. So maybe if there are founders out there who are struggling with building their brand and everything, maybe they can reach out to you, right? On LinkedIn, on, uh, on email maybe? Yeah, please do. Uh, Marville at warnbrand.com. Just uh, okay. reach out to me or reach out to your team and you can connect them with me. But uh, yeah, it's definitely empathetic environment out there. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you. Thank you for everything. Your honest answers, great insights. And I will have an eye on Warren at what you're doing. And I will try to you know keep up with your face because it seems you're moving too fast almost. And yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me.